Information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Blue Crew Medicine. Today, we're going to do a little bit about vents, some ventilator management. So we're joined today, first time on the podcast, is Dr. Jesse Harvey from our own UMC, uh, go from the MICU. Thank you for joining us. Welcome. Happy to be here. And then coming back for another round is D. Davis Holiday. Hello. Flight nurse, air care for, um, then once again, I'm Will Appleby, the educator for air care and one of the CCPs. So this morning, let's just get right into it. Vents. So big things we deal with a lot, um, invasive, non-invasive. So what can your vent do for you? Every, every vent's a little bit different. Every box is a little bit different as far as what it'll do. Um, so let's just get right into the difference between house vents and transport vents. So when I think of a house vent, I think of traditional vent that you pretty much have most capabilities you could ever dream of, provided it's relatively new technology. If it's a vent in the last 10 years, most of them are pretty much the same. Um, we use the servo eyes here a lot. We've, well, we have several different brands now since COVID um, that I see around UMC, but around most big hospitals. And then there's also the transport vents. So some of them have some capabilities, some are a little bit better than others. Most of them, if you're dealing with a transport vent um, that's a true ventilator, not just a auto bagger 3000, not to just throw out a generic name, but a true ventilator, most of them can do volume or pressure. Um, some of them have the capability to do PRBC, and some of them are the same capability of a house vent, which is totally what you're dealing with. So as far as true volume vents, um, a lot of the house vents we deal with and pressure-driven vents, is there some different way you approach those vents if you know that's how they're manufactured or know that's how they process for y'all? Me, yeah, I mean, um, so the first thing I'd say is know the ventilator that you have because every ventilator has its own quirks and what it does better and what it what it doesn't do. Um, really, and then it's patient-driven of what's going on with the patient because there's not really just like a, you know, cutting on 12, 505 at 100%, like you can do it, sure, but is that what's right for your patient? Uh, it's really knowing what your vent does best um, and what's going on with the patient to kind of titrate exactly what settings you need to dial in. The other thing I would say with that is know if it's pressure-driven or volume-targeted or true volume. Because if it's volume-targeted, oh, well, you may set a volume, title volume of 450, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get 450. So again, to that point, understanding your vent, what actually you can do with it or what it's actually giving you, what the numbers mean. So moving down to some of the basics we talk about with vents, so common modalities, pressure, volume, PRVC, what are some stuff y'all just generically go to? What's your generic settings? Yeah, I you know typically use volume control or volume assist control and pressure assist control most commonly. Um, and, and as we mentioned before, I'm usually dealing with the house vents, which most commonly is a servo eye. Um, and those ventilators have PRVC too, and we can talk about what that is. But in general, volume assist control and pressure assist control are the ones that I go to most often. Um, and just to, to talk a little bit about the difference in those two. So volume assist control is is exactly what it sounds. So you, you control the tidal volume, you set the tidal volume that you want the patient to get. You set a respiratory rate, you set a PEEP, and you set an FiO2, 
and your pressure is going to be your variable. So your pressure is going to depend on what title volume you set and really what is going on with the patient and what their compliance is. So as their compliance gets better, um, then it's going to take let you're going to generate less pressure from that title volume. If their compliance gets worse, then it's going to take more pressure to get that that set title volume. Pressure control is really kind of the opposite, and it again is is what the name sounds like. It's you set the the pressure or the pressure over the PEEP, and you set a PEEP, a respiratory rate, and an FiO2, and your tidal volume is going to be your variable. So your tidal volume is going to depend on what pressure you set, as well as, again, what is going on with the patient, and, and especially what the compliance of the patient is. So those are really kind of your, your two most common modes in volume control. You're going to set your tidal volume, and you're going to get that tidal volume, but at, at the expense of you know, if the patient's compliance gets worse, then then that pressure is going to go up and, and you're going to kind of get into trouble there versus in pressure control. If the patient's compliance gets worse, then what you're going to see is their tidal volumes dropping. And those are kind of the, the big things you need to pay attention to in those two modes. Um, the thing that I'd like to think about when I'm setting up somebody too, and you can't have this conversation of vents without sedation. Um, a lot of times when you have somebody in assist control in a high stimuli environment, um, you have to really dial in your sedation to let your vent work for you. Because if the patient is, you know, very stimulated and coughing and breathing against the vent, then your ventilator is not helping you. Um, you really need to dial in your sedation to be able to pick the right, um, you know, mode um, for so that the patient can so that the patient can rest and the vent can actually do what it's supposed to do. And you're not, you know, a vent is great, don't get me wrong, but it's an artificial thing. It's not the same as their lungs. It's not the same as the patient. They they know what they need most of the time. Most of the time their body's trying to do it on its own. But you need to, if you want the ventilator to really work, you need that pain and sedation management to allow the vent to work. As far as, you did a great job explaining those two. When you think about pressure and volume, are there different patient populations you automatically say yes I'm going to try this first a lot of the patients we deal with we're, we're the in, in transport we're the ones putting them on the vent but sometimes we're the ones that hey we started here and it's not working we're going to move to something else is there something when you think about first putting somebody you first intubate them hey I'm going to try this first this is just my generic stuff yeah, in, in general, I don't think there's an absolute hard and fast rule, but it does, I kind of lean towards one of the one setting or another, depending on what's going on with the patient. So, uh, and it, it also depends on how sedated they are, right? So if, if they're not deeply sedated just yet, then then that may lead me to pick one over the other. So in general, in patients that are not deeply sedated, I tend to, to use pressure assist control first or PRVC. Uh, just because a lot of times it's it's a little bit more comfortable. It the flow pattern on both of those is a little bit more physiologic, and I think patients tolerate it a little more. Um, in patients that have ARDS, and and where I really want to make sure their tidal volumes are controlled, and where I really want to make sure that that their tidal volumes are not increasing too high, I, I a lot of times will pick volume control. But as we've emphasized, that that mode really requires the patients to be somewhat sedated most of the time because they they don't tend to like it as much as they do pressure control and every patient's different but kind of just general rules that's what i typically see um 
for the transport world, typically when we pick up uh, pediatric patients, they like pressure better. Um, the adults will usually start them on like a SIMV type. Um, and again, it matters what ventilator you have. Like we currently use the Hamilton T1s and um, it's very easy to switch modes. The Revell, the buttonology can be a little complicated because there's not a screen and, and you kind of have to wait for the cycles of, to go through and tell you what you're doing and what your pips are. You have to like enter that. twice. Right. And so it, it also, there's nothing wrong with putting a patient on a mode looking at, you know, your exit volumes, your you know peak inspiratory pressures and saying, hey, this isn't working. It's not giving me what I want. Let's try something else. Absolutely. You can always do that. I think it's kind of interesting. So when I, a little, me with ventilators, I was brought up in volume. So everybody, when I first started using real vents, so I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to start in volume, go to pressure. And now I'm more of a pressure person <laughs> in most of the patients, especially uh, trauma. If they have really good compliant lungs, I just let them go. Let let their let them drive whatever volumes they want. Hey, I'm going to give you pressures that are safe that I know I'm not going to increase if they have a. You know, I don't want to cause an pneumothorax or make someone to get worse if I don't have to. All that kind of stuff. So, I'll tend to lean more towards pressure or PRBC than volume than I used to. Let's dive in a little bit into PRBC um, before we talk about outputs. So, PRBC pressure regulated volume control. Um, some would argue it's the safest modality in a vent. Don't disagree with that. It's basically I'm going to set the pressure, and I'm going to give you that pressure until I get you the volume that I want. So if I set a pressure of 20, okay, that's the max pressure I can go up to to give you my targeted volume, which is, we'll say in this case, it's going to be 500. So it's going to give you a pressure of 20 all the way for whatever inspiratory time I want up until I get a volume of 500, and then it'll cut off. Do you all use PRVC pretty regular? Well, I mean, technically if you look at it since we use the hamiltons that's the basic modality that you're getting into is prvc because that is a pressure targeted vent so um if you're going to target a volume if i plug in 450 well the ventilator does within 10 of the say just to be safe it does within 10 of the pressure that's dialed in there that's pretty much what i'm doing in that simv mode is i'm, I'm dialing in my pressure to get close to that close to that targeted volume that the ventilator will allow me to safely give for this patient. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's the mode that I use the most really. I think that mode in the, on the Hamilton T1 vents um, is, I, I would be my favorite mode as well. On the servo, I, you do have to pay a little bit closer attention to it. And the way it works is the, and this is all ventilator dependent, but on those specific vents that we use in the hospital, you, set your tidal volume and you do you set an alarm which is kind of your your kind of pressure limit like you have on the hamilton vents um so you set your tidal volume and the ventilator gives you a test breath to see what pressure it's going to take to achieve that goal tidal volume which that all is great the the biggest thing to be careful of on those vents is to make sure that the alarms are set appropriately where it doesn't go past that pressure, or at least it will alarm if it goes to that pressure. Because what will happen is the ventilator is going to do whatever it needs to do to make sure it achieves that target volume. And so it's going to increase the pressure indefinitely until it gets there. So if you've set your alarms appropriately, then it'll alarm when you go past the pressure that you think is the safe pressure. So I totally agree. As long as you know what you're doing with that mode and you're paying attention to it, that it can be a really helpful mode. That's what really kind of a point to bring up real fast is 
alarms are there for a reason, and you have to understand your vent on what those alarms do for you. So just spinning the dials, I don't like the alarms, I don't like the beeping, spinning them all the way is not necessarily a good thing to do um, because it can cause harm to your patient because you can, especially with pressure stuff, you can get a whole lot of increased pressure you don't want. Moving on a little bit to the outputs. So we've talked a little bit about inputs and some of the most common stuff. As far as outputs, what do you all really look at? Like street, down and dirty, what do you really look at every day to figure out, hey, is this vent working? The two quickest things that I look at are my peak pressures and my exit volumes. I want to get close to my targeted volume that I've put in on that vent. And then you have to look at your peak pressures to make sure that their lung compliance is handling. I mean, if you have a pressure of 40, you may need to change some things, you know. Um, try not to get above 28 to 30 range on there. Uh, but those are the two. The, the first two that I go at and I look at my vent. Even on the Ravel, when we were doing those, I'd wait till it cycled through, and I want to see what my pressures are every time versus my exit volumes. Yeah, I agree. I look at the the peak pressure a lot, and I really think of it as kind of a, a surrogate um, of what's going on with the with the patient, and and I think of it as a surrogate for what's going on at the alveoli, even though we know that it's really not representative of the true alveolar pressure. But if we're targeting a certain peak pressure and we're, we're not going above that, then we know our plateau pressure is within our goal um, because it physiologically has to be lower than our plateau or than our peak pressure. So I use the peak pressure all the time as well. And if it's somebody that I'm concerned about or somebody that I really know has a lot of airway resistance and I know that their peak pressure is high because of that resistance, then I will, then I will check frequent plateau pressures as well, um, just so I make sure that they're staying within my goal and I'm not worried about causing any barotrauma. The other thing that I look at too is the minute ventilation, but I pay attention to that more so when I'm targeting blood gas changes, you know, when, I, when I'm making adjustments based on patient's pH, I really target a certain minute ventilation, but just kind of quick and dirty looking at the vent, I completely agree. I'm, I'm looking at the, the tidal volumes and making sure my tidal volume is, is at the goal that I want. I look at minute ventilation to me, a, a trend, it, it's a trend. Agree. It's it's like, a okay, here's a trend over 60 seconds. I can literally do a snapshot in time with my exit volume and say, all right, well, I know my rate's 20 and my exit volume's 400. All right, two times four, it's eight-ish. Um, but I need to go up or change or whatever. But sometimes at minute ventilation, especially if a spontaneously breathing patient, they're taking the guppy breaths or that other stuff, it can kind of throw you off a totally little bit. Totally agree. So, Paying attention to watching your patient and the vent at the same time to see what they're really doing and what they're really driving can be really important. I'm with y'all. I use the I use the pips and the uh, exit volumes more than anything else. I mean, just especially with most of the vents, they have the pips where it's really easy to see. It's either some fun light or whatever where you can really point it out, or a big fat number right in the middle. Um, and then the Exit volumes sometimes can be hard to find, but just knowing where they are in your vent and how to get to them. Let's let's talk a little, shift a little bit into non-invasive. So we're talking about invasive, which is some of the most common stuff we do with vents, but non-invasive CPAP and BiPAP. Um, for our EMS folks out in the room, BiPAP, for some people in Mississippi, is relatively new in transport. Um, all they've ever had is CPAP and the flow-driven stuff with oxygen bottles, and we have a finite amount of oxygen on the trucks, so... That may not be the best option for trying to go four or five hours for a transfer, which is happening these days on ground. So what's the biggest difference? If you had a choice, would you always go to BiPAP? Would you always go to CPAP? Is there ever 
what are your thoughts? Well, it's funny. I think, I think I want to turn this question back on you because you have done the ground transports with CPAP. Um, I've only done with BiPAP. So I just was curious what, what you think about that question. So for me, it's, I would always do BiPAP. I have more control. Um, CPAP is great. If you have a hypertensive, I'll just start picking scenarios, CHF patient that their blood pressure is 200 and I have a whole lot of room to play with and I'm not worried about their thoracic pressure and I'm really trying to push everything out and we just need a whole lot of peep. But because I've had to deal with so many, especially since I started flying, but so many complex patients that have COPD and CHF and asthma and all these different things, oh, and pneumonia, on top of all this other stuff, and you're trying to play this balancing act between I need oxygenation, but I need ventilation. It allows you to titrate that ventilation component a lot easier. Um, but it's still a balancing act, and you still got to know what device you're playing with. Using BiPAP on a LTV 1200, which is one of the first vents I ever used here, versus BiPAP on a Hamilton or a like Servo I, they're two. That's Chinese and Japanese. Because yeah, in the transport world, I can be honest with you, I don't have any experience with CPAP. My experience with CPAP is we're weaning this fella off and we're going to try him on CPAP. You know <laughs> yeah, I mean? yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think if, if you forced me to only have one to work with for the rest of my life, I certainly would pick would by level or by PAP. I think that you just have more capabilities with it and, and it is more effective in, in a lot of scenarios. You know, it assists with ventilation, like you said, and, and you can, you set a, an IPAP and an EPAP, so an inspiratory and an expiratory pressure, and really can, can increase the difference between those two to help with ventilation. So certainly it's better and more effective at CO2 clearance in patients that you're doing this for COPD or an asthma exacerbation. And really, in, you know, in CHF and, and hypertensive emergency, like you said, a lot of times patients have multiple things going on at once, and really it... it I think you get more bang for your buck with it. You could get away with just CPAP in those patients, but but I think bi-level is, is just usually a little bit more effective. Just that little bit of extra pressure, a little bit of extra support on top of something yep. to help blow yep. everything out, man, it can make a big difference. So I'm curious about what are your initial settings on BiPAP? Because I've found that if I start somebody on some lower settings and kind of, I may need to increase and get them to where, but like, you know, it's such a claustrophobic, anxiety-ridden, you know, device that if I start them on a lower pressure, yeah, they may need it, but I work them slowly up that they do fine with it. Is that kind of what you found or yeah. do you just go ahead and start them on, you know, 20 over 10 and let it ride? Most patients, I will start lower, just like you said, and, and especially those, you know, usually these are patients that are pretty awake, right? Because we're not putting them on non-invasive if they're, if they have a really low GCS and you're exactly right that they get claustrophobic and they may not tolerate it, at least that initial shock. And so, I tend to start on the lower end as well, 10 to 15 um, inspiratory pressure and usually about five um, expiratory pressure and then just kind of see how they do. And if they need more pressure than that, then slowly work my way up. If somebody's severely hypoxic or if they have a very high BMI, then I may start a little bit on the lower end, especially with that expiratory pressure initially. But but usually I agree. I start a little bit lower and then, and then work up. It's interesting you bring up comfort. There are a couple of different things you can do to manipulate that comfort to make it a little bit more comfortable to them. Not just the pressure itself, but how you get to that pressure. Adjusting uh, P-ramp and some other stuff. Uh, rise time is another way, some other terminology people use. Other challenging events, and I should have said it earlier, sorry. Depends on the manufacturer you talk to about what terminology they have. So if you talk to a Hamilton person versus I talk to a Draeger person, it may be eyes and nose. It's not. It may not be the same, but try to use the terminology that, kind of makes everybody sense. Uh, 
P-Ramp and rise time, so how fast are they getting that pressure? How fast is it going out? When you're talking about P-Ramp, um, I'm going to use the Hamilton because it's honestly what I'm most comfortable with these days, milliseconds. So standard for us is usually somewhere between 250 and 300 milliseconds. You can elongate that out. So they're not getting that claustrophobic feel like they're, their head's in a train out the window. And I think that does a lot for patients too. Just a little, uh, hey, I feel like claustrophobic. Okay, let me turn the P-Ramp up. So here I was, thought you were about to talk about ketamine and Ativan right off the bat. Ah, <laughs> uh, no. I mean, no. I could, but no. So, talk a little BiPAP. As far as FiO2 and BiPAP, because I've gotten asked this before, do y'all always start 100%? Or do you start kind of low? I mean, it's okay. I mean, everybody's shaking their head. You can't see, but they're all like, no. No, I usually start at 60. I mean, the, the best thing about BiPAP is the pressure involved with it. Um, so, I usually start at 60 and titrate it to what they need. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a very safe approach. And it, again, obviously, it's going to be patient dependent, right? Um, but in general, I think the biggest takeaway with both invasive and non-invasive is you don't have to put everybody on 100% and just leave them there until you get them, you know, to where you're transporting them or until you're checking a blood gas. It's okay. You can you can watch their O2 sat and in real time go ahead and, and turn those settings down as long as they're maintaining. I think that's a really important point. For sure. That, and that's one of the big disadvantages to those those CPAP devices when they first came out. They were all flow. They are pure oxygen. They're, I mean, they're easy. They're great in a disaster world. They're awesome for an environment where you just have flow, but you can't regulate anything as far as FiO2. So they're getting straight oxygen. So some of our patients that were CHF and COPD, and they're, you know, they'd be on BiPAP, or excuse me, not BiPAP, they'd be on that CPAP flow device for 10 or 15 minutes, and they're feeling better, and all of a sudden they start kind of crumping. And they're like, what is this? Well, they're for them oxygen toxic they're not used to all that stuff something else that's become relatively new with vents is the high flow uh, traditional high flow for us was literally a regulator and you could turn it fio2 and it would literally spin up and we have the fancy warmers and all the stuff on carts and hospitals and some of our vents are now able to do that do y'all feel like that's appropriate for vents is it just an extra tool in the toolbox yeah, I love it. Ever since we've gotten the ability to do high flow and transport, it has saved so many, especially pediatric patients, because they don't really tolerate BiPAP all that well. I mean, do they tolerate a cannula in their nose? Probably not. But it's better than the big mask sitting on them tight on their face. And uh, the only thing is it gets it really irritates their nares. Um, so sometimes we'll try to, you know, nebulize some saline or something just to provide some type of, I guess, humidity in there to try to, you know, keep them from getting all that dry washout stuff. But um, it's good for those patients that need just a little bit of pressure because it gives them about, you know, like five or so, they say. So um, I, I personally, I love it. I completely agree. I think that it, I think that's the big role for it is is, you know, patients, obviously, that you need support for their oxygenation but but you also do get some positive pressure from it about about five a peep like you said um depends on the flow but in general and i think the big role is those patients that just will not tolerate cpap or bilevel because they're not tolerating a mask on their face almost almost always they will tolerate a cannula in their nose better have y'all seen a with covid we kind of have this wonderful trial of high flow because everybody wanted to go for it for a while have y'all seen the rates vary or have they pretty much staying the same throughout you using it? Like if for first of all, the reason I'm bringing it up, like first one you taught high flow is like you had to be at 20 to 40 per liter per minute. 
And then some people are going back to like 10 for adults. Um, kids have pretty much never changed, but adults have seen, I've seen some varying both in literature and then just around. What are y'all's thoughts as far as how much they really need? I think it's just patient dependent. I mean, what's going on with them? What's their lung compliance like? I mean, I've had them on 15. I've had them higher than that. I mean, it's just patient dependent, really. Yeah, I agree. You know, patients, COPD patients tend to like a lot of flow. And so they feel so much better when you crank that flow up. But then other patients don't tolerate the flow. That's the thing that makes them uncomfortable. And they do a lot better if you turn it down. So, yeah, I agree. I think it just depends on the individual patient and what's going on with them physiologically. So we've talked a lot about, about independent patients and everybody has their own little things. Let's move in a little back toward uh, invasive stuff for a minute. Are there certain patient populations you try to go for certain things or you trend certain things? So I'll just pick one out of the back. seems to be one of the ch- most challenging ones for ventilators because we try not to intubate these patients. So COPD is asthmatics. When I think of a COPD or asthmatic I really don't. I try not to intubate them best I can. But if you put them on BiPAP and they're trialing it, they become obtunded, their GCS is now five, or we walk in the door and that's what it is. We're kind of our hands forced. As far as ventilator management, what do you all start out with or try to start out with? We're going to, I want to do two cases on this specific thing. One is a person with a normal BMI. And one is that is not normal. By that, I mean a, a rather, rather large individual. So are there, are there variances in those two? But let's start with a normal one first. What do y'all think of when you think of obstructive stuff? In general, I like we've talked about already, I, I'm partial to pressure control or pressure assist control or some other pressure mode such as P, PRVC in, in most settings. Uh, and I think that in general, I, COPD patients, I, I do the same. I think the biggest thing to pay attention to is those patients, you know, usually they are they have trouble with their expiratory phase, right? They have trouble getting their air out of their lungs, and so they tend to be gas-trapped. And so I think the biggest key is making sure that you give them a low enough respiratory rate for their expiratory flow to return to baseline uh, and to stop before their next breath comes. Otherwise, you're going to increase the risk that you're you're causing more gas-trapping and going to cause worsening dynamic hyperinflation and um, and, and more auto peep. So I, to me, the biggest thing that I pay attention to in patients that are getting intubated for a COPD exacerbation is that respiratory rate. And, and I kind of just use the expiratory flow curve as my marker um, of kind of where the upper limit of my respiratory rate. And if they need more because they, I'm trying to clear their CO2, then I'll, I'll go up to, to kind of our upper limit of what we think is the safe tidal volume in those patients. But I really try to pay attention to their respiratory rate and make sure that it's not too high. And it's counterintuitive because we think that these patients are hypercapnic. We need to blow off CO2. Let's crank their rate up, but they just oftentimes don't tolerate it. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And this is one of the things where I'm really excited that now we're using the Hamiltons because you have that picture graph where you can see where these people are breath stacking and you can, you can titrate it just by looking at a graph um, over your trends there. Uh, it, it, come, it kind of comes back to like if you have an asthma patient that's intubated and goes into cardiac arrest, what's the first thing you do? You disconnect the vent yep. to get all that air out, right? So think Manual about that. Press that chest. Exactly. Think about that when you're setting up for your settings. You have to give these people enough time to exhale. And yeah, you need do need to clear some CO2, but then you just do that with what volume they're taking yep. out. The other thing that I pay attention to in those patients, and, and we can talk about this a little bit more in the in the patient with the larger BMI, but 
a lot of times COPD patients especially, you know, they already have a good bit of autopeep um, because of their underlying physiology. And so if they, if you're having trouble getting them to return to baseline on their expiratory flow curve, a lot of times the something that can help is to try to match their autopeep. And so turn the set peep up on the ventilator to about 70, 80% of what their total auto peep is um, or their, what their total intrinsic peep is. And, and that will usually help matters, which is also counterintuitive because you think you don't want to give this patient extra peep um, because they you're already have auto more, yeah, peep. You're not yep. trying to put more yep. pressure into that chest. It's barrel enough. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Open. Exactly. Um, but it, it allows them to overcome all of their auto peep to initiate their breath and makes them usually a lot more comfortable and, and it can help with that dynamic hyperinflation that they have. So another point of that, with these patients, you're watching pressures. A lot of the things you have to be mindful of these patients is they're going to have high pressures and you're okay with that. I mean, you're just going to know that I need to trend where I start and then work our way back. We're going to try to mitigate best we can. But that watching that inspiratory time, expiratory time, that IDE ratio, a lot of people get wrapped around the axle with IDE ratios. And I don't, I don't like, I'm a numbers guy and I don't like numbers on these because it's patient dependent, number one, and two, it's just, hey, I need to have a longer expiratory time, but don't focus so much on the numbers that the ratios has to be X. Um, it's okay to have a respiratory rate of eight. It, it looks weird. It, that number shouldn't be that low, but it's okay. Some of these patients, that's the only way you're going to really ventilate them. Now, it gets kind of tricky when you start getting a little bit bigger patients. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is because we have some around here. But the 300, 400 pounders that are already have a lot of adipose tissue, they're five foot six, they're COPD, and they're exacerbated. They have really short neck. It was a difficult airway. They're now intubated. Do y'all approach those patients any little different? So I hope this doesn't need to be said, but just because that patient is 500 pounds, their lungs are not 500 pounds. I just... I know everybody should know that, but how many times do we go into these hospitals and pick up, you know, this guy's 600 pounds, he's five foot three, and dear God, they got him on 700 of yep. volume. Like, I mean, you got to do the ideal body weight, folks. Ideal body weight. The other part of that I would bring up is the ideal body weight and then look at your patient. Yep. Like, just look at them. They're not going to be able to fit that, but you got to move all that weight out of the way. If it's a five foot six, four hundred pound person, that's a lot of weight on top of their chest. That's a lot of added pressure. So do the simple stuff first before you start wearing them. Lean them up. Get some of that weight off. Get some of the weight off their chest so the ventilator's not having to work so hard. I've seen plenty of vents over the years, especially not knocking some of the cheaper ones, but some of the cheaper vents, and you know which one I'm talking about yeah. specifically, yeah. that will. Literally time out and shut off after a minute. Well, even look at the reverse of that too. You have a small pediatric patient, like a, you know, a one-year-old where you've got a 4-0 ET tube. The Revell was notorious about giving you pressures of 50 on there. Now, is it giving you the pressure of 50 in their lungs? No, it's giving you the pressure of 50 at that tiny little ET tube. The Hamilton does a little better with that, but the Revell is notorious at giving you these false high pressures. And so that, that goes back to, again, you just have to know what your vent does and the little quirks of each one. I can't emphasize the sitting the patient up and doing simple things like that to try to, you know, relieve their intra-abdominal pressure and all of the, the pressure that their that their chest wall is is putting on their lungs. I can't 
tell you how many times I walk in the room and a patient's lying completely flat and, and you sit them up to, you know, almost 90 degrees. There's no reason. Everybody doesn't have to just be at 30 degrees. That We can sit them up as high as we want and how that can make such a difference in their ventilation. And then I think these patients too, you know, an obese patient that has a COPD exacerbation, those are the patients that I really am going to set the PEEP higher than, than, than what my normal threshold is because I, they have two processes that, that are needing that higher PEEP, right? So the COPD needs the higher PEEP to overcome that auto PEEP most of the time. Um, and then we know that patients that are obese, that are our actual PEEP is not really representative of, or, and our alve, or, excuse me, our plateau pressure is not representative of what is actually going on at their alveoli. And so they a lot of times require a higher PEEP to overcome the extra pressure from their chest wall and their body habitus. So I would usually target a higher PEEP in these patients. And I'll just pay attention to my total pressure and what that PEEP is doing to my tidal volumes. When I go up on the PEEP, does it drop my tidal volumes? And I think that now I've over distended them. Um, or, you know, I'll look at my stress index. Do I look like I'm over distended there? Um, but otherwise, I usually will will target a higher PEEP in those patients. Something else and made me think of it. Don't forget the OG tube. Like decompress their stomach. Absolutely. If they're just got intubated, how long do they get bagged? Do they have a whole bunch of air in there? Were they air hungry and sitting there sucking a whole lot of air in? So decompress it, get your get your lungs as open as they possibly can be. But again, simple things can make a big difference. When you're so we talked a little about obstructive. Let's talk about the hard or difficult to oxygenate patients. So everybody jumps to ARDS, but ARDS or even some of our I'd say cryptic pneumonia PE don't really know what's going on with them, but they're not getting a set worth of flip to begin with. What do y'all use or manipulate to try to get this patient to oxygenate? Obviously, we're talking about patients that oxygenation is going to trump ventilation. We're not really necessarily worried about our CO2. I'm really trying to, besides it's a great indicator of cardiac output, but I'm, I'm trying to fix their oxygenation. What are, you, what are y'all going to do for those patients? Uh, the, the PEEP scale, you know, you, you know, you just go up a little bit on your PEEP versus what your oxygenation is. I mean, I've gotten out of that. When I first started nursing, it was, everybody was on assist control, 512, five at a hundred percent. And that was it. And if you weren't getting it at a hundred percent too bad, well, I've flipped now to be thinking, okay, I can start somebody at 60% on a PEEP of five. Well, let me go up to seven. How's that look? Then I'll take up my oxygen to 70 and then I'll go up to nine and just scale that PEEP up. And you may get to some uncomfortable numbers and you don't have to leave them there. It can also be a recruitment thing. I can sit there and recruit and then back them down once I get everything recruited up. But um, just that scale of, of slowly going up and seeing what happens as you go up. I couldn't agree more. I uh, every time I'm teaching about the ventilator, I make that point that I don't ever really want to see someone on 100% FiO2 and only on a PEEP of five. There's just no reason to not use that PEEP as an oxygenation tool. And I think it's important to stress here, this applies, especially this principle applies to pediatrics and adults. The only thing you got to be mindful with it if you keep on increasing their PEEP is interthoracic pressure and watch your hemodynamics with that which can be challenging, especially in kids, because they're usually dehydrated by the time right. we're getting to this point. But There's always a way to augment that. Yeah, yeah there's, there's things. We do have medicines. Facilitation. But watching those interthoracic pressures, it, it's the, the an one, easy way the to do one it. The one that, that, that like scares me is the, um, 
the CHF patients, maybe they're close to getting on an LVAD type deal. Those are the ones that are that are scary to deal with. Um, I take my scale much slower on them because that pressure, their heart just can't handle it. You know what I mean? It's just those in the aortic dissections. Yeah. So the dissections are some of the most. I was actually kind of getting there. The dissections are probably some of the most scary ones for me to put on the ventilator. First off. The concept of intubating them is a challenge because you're trying to like, all right, well, what drugs can I give them? Where am I trying to play this? I'm already trying to drop their heart rate and their blood pressure, so they're already permissively hypotensive where I want them to be. And then I have to put a positive pressure inside their chest and push on something that I don't want to rip. How's that going to go? Something that I've used, especially in those patients, to kind of help me out is manipulate my inspiratory time in my rise time or my P ramp. So how fast that pressure is, all I'm thinking about in my head is like physics and shear. So my thought is if it doesn't slam on something, it's probably not going to shear it near as bad versus if I slowly kind of push on it, maybe it's a little better. That's an anecdotal Will's head, but it seems to work okay and they seem to tolerate it a little bit better. I think with both of those things, it's always like there's no reason not to just try. A lot of times it's trial and error, but but try to adjust the rise time, like you said, and see if that helps. Prolong the inspiratory time and see if the patient tolerates it and does it help with my oxygenation, you know? Just trial and error and see what works. Let's talk really quick about advanced stuff. We, we don't have to go all the way down the rabbit hole, but we've talked a lot about manipulating some of these stuff and that we need to... you. Watch what you're doing, but hey, it's okay to try something different. It's okay to swap them from volume to pressure. They may like it. Some patients just don't like volume. Some patients just don't like pressure, and it's okay to change some stuff. When you have those complex patients that are ARDS or somebody that may need a little advanced modality, if you have it available to you, when do y'all think to start going down that road? What is it I have to check all these boxes and then I can do it? Or is it like, hey, I've just seen this before and I'm going to go with it? And typically what I'm talking about is do a pipe bi-level or APRV. Um, the Hamilton has the ASV, the intelligent ventilation stuff. But I don't, I'm, I'm talking more the do a pipe APRV kind of thing. The Hamilton is so good about patient safety. And that's the one thing about this ventilator is it's very patient safe and it's so smart, but almost to a fault. When you have these patients where nothing is working, Duopap is the one where it's like, what settings I put in, the vent is most likely going to do. Um, there's, it's still safe because um, it still has those you know little safety levels that it builds in. Um, but I work my way up to that. I've tried everything under the sun in the volume mode that I have them in, adjusting all my different things. And then I'll go to pressure and adjust all my different things. Um, and it just depends on how I get there. Like, I mean, the one patient that comes to mind was that one, you remember, um, that GI boy guy that we Uh called you on, man, we tried everything on that guy and could not get him to ventilate at all to the point where we started bagging him. Now he had a, uh, he had emesis plugged into his left main. And so he had to get a washout when we got to the receiving facility, but, um, you know, it's one of those things where I don't just immediately say I've seen this before and I'm just going to go to do a pap. I mean, I guess you could, but me, I just want to, I want to try the, I want to work my way up to that. Just like anything else with a ventilator. I just want to work my way to something. Yeah, I agree. I, I tend to, to kind of do the same with APRV. 
Um, and so APRV, for anyone that doesn't know, is airway pressure release ventilation. And, and to put it really simply, it is kind of the opposite of, it's an extreme of how we normally breathe. So usually our, our inspiratory time is shorter than our expiratory time, usually about one to three, right? Um, APRV is, is that's flipped. And so your, your inspiratory time is much longer than your expiratory time. So really APRV in its traditional sense, most of the respiratory cycle is spent at that higher airway pressure um, and there's just a very quick intermittent release where the patient ventilates. Um, and so the, it really serves as an oxygenation mode um, because the patient is sitting at that higher airway pressure. So that's really when I tend to pick it in, in a patient that is severely hypoxic but is otherwise ventilating at least okay. They don't have to be ventilating perfectly, but I don't usually go to that mode in somebody that has a severe acidosis. Um, the beauty of it, if you use it correctly, is the patient can take spontaneous breaths while they're at that higher pressure. So they do get some extra ventilation when they're taking those spontaneous breaths. So it really is best to be used in patients that are not deeply sedated, certainly not in patients that are paralyzed. And then you really get your, your most benefit from it because you can, you can ventilate while they're at that higher pressure, but leaving them and, you know, having them sitting at that higher pressure for most of the respiratory cycle helps with your oxygenation. So that's, that's usually when I tend to, to go to APRV is in, in a patient that is just very hypoxic. And I've tried all of the other traditional troubleshooting techniques in the traditional modes. And, and it's, I'm just not getting where I want to be. I think it's important you stress that part about spontaneous breathing. Cause I didn't really understand that until I watched the first patient on APRV and how much it can help them. You're going to, an APRV, just by principle, by definition of it, you're going to have permissive hypercapnia. You know your CO2 is going to be high because you're having a shorter expiratory time than Absolutely. you normally have. Well, it's not an oscillator. Yeah, <laughs> it's, not, it's not that cool. But you, those spontaneous breaths help that patient regulate their own CO2. And so that can be extremely beneficial in the prolonged stay of the patient. Um, yeah, in the meantime, do you not necessarily want that? Yeah, I want to fix a number, but you're looking at the whole patient, the whole patient while I spontaneously breathe in, um, which is why I'll leave with it and I'll throw my opinion in there. APRV and transport is a challenge. And it, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying be mindful of what you're doing and it, it, it's a challenge. Um, Duopap bi-level is mine like that. After we really figured out the Hamiltons, that's the end-all be-all. If I can't get everything else to go... I've tried pressure, I've tried volume, and I've really manipulated a lot of the manipulated pressures and inspiratory times, and I've kind of played with it, and I'm just going to get the numbers I want. Do a pat for me is, all right, I'm going to give you this pressure at this time, and I'm going to give you this pressure at this time for your expiratory phase, and then we're going to see how this works out. Um, and it's me controlling you, basically. It also works pretty decently in patients that have been paralyzed versus APRB again that does not. So... You can watch them a little bit better. ASV, the intelligent ventilation, which is uh, proprietary to Hamilton, but it's a pretty cool mode for people if you kind of want to not think is the way I think of it. You let the vent think for you. And you basically said, hey, I want this minute ventilation, and go. And it just basically judges the compliance and goes from there. That being said, if you're truly dealing with a critical care patient and you're truly dealing with somebody that has a pulmonary issue, it may not be the best mode. The best way to understand different ventilatory modes is to have somebody with 
totally unsick lungs. Just let's say they're drunk and you're intubating them for airway protection. That is the best way to learn. This is how a patient reacts to pressure. This is how a patient reacts to volume and to play around with different things. I mean, obviously don't do anything to hurt your patient, but it's the best way to understand how your patient is going to react. Um, so that when you do have a patient that you need to swap things up on, you know, like, okay, this is what it's supposed to do because this is what it did on the person that wasn't sick. And this is what the alarms are going to be. This is when they pop off. So, you know, it's a challenge, folks, if you we do this all the time in orientation, like, hey, this patient you put on volume, this patient you put on pressure. Now, have a rationale of why you did that, not just to play, but see what happened. Exactly. How do you manipulate that vent? How do you manipulate your vent to do what you want it to do? And again, know your equipment. Know what's important to you and what matters. So, anything else on vents that we kind of the basics we didn't really hit? You don't want to talk about? I don't have anything. I think um, just again, know your ventilator, know the tools in your toolbox. Um, just be able to know what your ventilator does good, what it doesn't. Uh, every every vent is different, um, and then every every vent is different in each patient population too. So it's really it's not unfortunately it's not a plug and play situation. It's patient dependent and what your vent can do. Yeah, I agree. I think big take home points are, you know, paying attention to the patients, uh, kind of all of your, your settings that you're looking at, we emphasize the, the exit volumes and the peak pressures and just making sure that you're staying in a safe range with both of those things. You know, I think to drive the point home that just because your patient weighs five or 600 pounds doesn't mean their lungs do. And so don't put the patients on tidal volumes that are potentially damaging to them because of that. Um, and then, and then the other big take-home point is is look at your actual patient, not just the ventilator, right, and do simple things that you can to help them ventilate and oxygenate, like sitting them up, decompressing their their stomach, and and all of those simple maneuvers that can make a big difference. Okay, guys, appreciate your time today. It's been fun. Absolutely, enjoyed it. This has been a presentation of Blue Crew Medicine.